February of this year, my friends William and Michael and I were on the road for a speaking event. We were brought in by a church made up mostly of individuals over the age of 75. Most of them did not know what a podcast was and had never heard of the Liturgist podcast, the show that the three of us happened to host together. The most obvious difference from our usual crowd, though, was that there were no people of color present, except my two co-hosts, Michael, a Latino man, and William, a black man. I gave a lecture about Yahweh, God's name, and what this means for us and our bodies. And what I had people do as part of this lecture was engage in mindfulness breathing and some free movement. And despite what many of them had likely heard growing up about dancing leading to sin or somehow meditation being the work of the enemy, I had this group of elderly white people dancing around a church. I wish you could have seen it. I would have made a joke about somehow lacing the church punch with LSD. <laughs> After lunch, William, an advocate for climate change, understanding uh, climate change, showed a documentary he made about a trip to the Arctic Natural National Refuge, where they learned from the Gwich'in people about the threat of oil drilling on their land and what this would do to their hunting and fishing, their community, their rituals. After he showed the documentary, the first question posed to him was overtly problematic and likely shaped by a legacy of white supremacy and colonization, I was instantly aware that I hadn't received the same pushback. Knowing him well, I watched attentive of his body language, how he responded. He was both boundaried and assertive, wise. As the conversation evolved and transformation began to take place, we peeled back layers of defensiveness and a palpable concern for the earth and our natural resources emerged and this honest reflection about the discomfort that comes with changing our way of living. At the end, someone asked William how he has hoped to do climate change activism work, still. And he took a deep breath and described to a room of mostly white Europeans that as a black man, he has hope that springs from simply knowing that he is here, in a room, because his enslaved great-grandparents had hope and refused to give up. He named that right alongside the legacy of horrific oppression and violence against black people. Those horrors could never be as powerful as their resilience. William and I ended up at the hotel bar in the evening. We debriefed the day and sat in silence for a little while. And it was obvious from that moment of insight for me that it cost him something. This learning for me, this learning for that community of people. We shared what it was like for him to be in a room where he had to educate so many people about things that were inescapable for him. The threats and weight of systemic oppression on bodies like his move with him from space to space in, in his DNA. Well, everyone else buys a ticket to learn about something and then at the end of the day can just leave it all behind when the event is done. I nodded some recognition in me that even though we were talking about it, even though we're friends, this too was an act of generosity for him to me. He was giving me a gift and he was inviting me to know something about his experience that I didn't know. I mean, I, I know it intellectually, but after all, we're not just a collection of ideas. We are bodies that are lived in space. He looked away for a moment and straight into my eyes and says, said, there is nothing quite like being in a room full of people who are descendant of slaves. Not only is it energizing, but it feels like it connects me to who I am and where I come from. And in spaces like that, I do not have to explain what it is like to be me. 
The incarnation, God becoming flesh, matters. It tells us that bodies matter to God, that matter itself is significant, that there is something about being in a body that is important to what God is doing here. Three weeks ago, if you were with us, you heard me say the following things. Jesus was a body, you are a body, and we collectively are a body. And that none of this is a mistake, but it's all part of the unfolding work of how God is in this world. Introduced embodiment as the experience of being a body, not just us being minds that hold bodies or are carried around by this kind of meat taxi. And while it's a good introduction, that definition is kind of milk toast. Uh, so let's level up, shall we? In my work, I appreciate the work of Dr. Neva Peran, who's an embodiment scholar, a psychologist, and she defines embodiment as the subjective experience of being a body engaging with the world around us. Bodies are not just in a vacuum. They exist in social contexts. That last piece matters. We are in a space that tells us stories about what it means to be a body and which bodies are valuable or not. So we can't have a conversation about embodiment and the incarnation without talking about power, how power is conferred on certain bodies, stripped from other bodies, and the systems that sustain this division. Today, I want to invite us to consider the politics of the body is actually central to the work of Jesus, and our participation in this unfolding work is actually a fulfillment of the expression of our faith. And because the theme of Advent today is love, I want to center us on the words of Cornell West. Love is in action, is justice. It's essential to note that the body is the site of power and oppression, both. And I mean this in two ways. One, the body is the location of our imposed hierarchies of value. Just run through the list of isms in your mind. I'll give you a moment to do that. The ones that come to mind for me, racism, sexism, heterosexism, ableism, sizeism, ageism, and so on. These are all, if you notice it, about the body. Specifically, which bodies are considered valuable socially? Which bodies are given access to certain spaces, positions of leadership, and safety in public? This all has to do with the body stories that culture gives us. But two, the body is the place where power and oppression are felt and lived. These stories about power don't exist in ether, but they impact real flesh and blood. Who gets pinned to the ground with a knee on their neck? Who's denied medical care? Who carries suffering, fatigue, and disease in their body from the enduring legacies of intergenerational trauma and ongoing microaggressions? Meanwhile, those of us with the most social power often forget we even have bodies. When we look at that of Jesus, the work of Jesus, we see that bodies and who has social power or not is part of what God is doing here. A few examples that come to mind require us to remember the social context that Jesus lived in and who at that time was considered outside the family of God or other. Jesus touches the body of a man with an infectious disease, a disease so stigmatized and feared by people that this disease was shunned and meant a person was rejected socially, a disease that his own Jewish law called unclean. Or one of my favorites of mine is when Jesus with a woman who is very likely, very likely a sex worker, has his feet anointed with valuable oil. And Jesus says to Simon, do you see this woman? I picture him saying it half inviting, half incredulous, disrupting a system which would have wanted to devalue, silence, and erase this woman. But Jesus sees her and invites everyone else to do the same. Dr. Reverend Will Gaffney, a biblical scholar, has also noted the particular use of gender in Jesus' narratives. 
She reminds us of the popular parable of the male shepherd whose sheep has wandered off. But in a story that's often separated from that one but comes right after, Jesus offers another parable. This time, the account of a woman. In this parable, the woman's in the house, she's lost her treasure, she sweeps the house for the treasure and finds it and the community celebrates with her. About this, Will Gaffney notes that Jesus tells the same parable twice with two protagonists, centering a woman in his story, knowing what that meant in his culture. She says, if Jesus can use inclusive language, why can't we? Contrary to the life of Jesus and the revelation of the incarnation, as a community of Jesus' followers, too often we've missed this. Our scriptures have been translated and interpreted to create a portrayal of truth in one very specific way. And that one way has been determined by those of us with the most social power. This has caused the social and linguistic erasure over time of the images and metaphors of God as a woman, God as a mother, God as non-binary, and in our original Hebrew text, all of that is there. Dr. Gaffney goes on to say this, we have this rich treasury of language in our scriptures that we neglect. And in our neglect, we make a lie the truth that we proclaim that we are all the image of God. Male, female, non-binary, trans, it matters what language we use. When we choose to use only domineering and authoritative bloody titles of warlords and patriarchs as our God language and simultaneously align those titles with one segment of the population, then what we are saying by our neglect and our silence and our exclusion is that some folk are not really the image of God. What I'm suggesting here is that we have to be discerning about how our social context and our privilege has aligned itself with our theology in such a way that we are wooed away from the life and ministry of Jesus, but that when we see that in context, Jesus' life and ministry was this constant invitation for us to be disruptors of cultural hierarchies and a central feature of our faith. A friend of mine, Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa, is a trans Latinx theologian and ethicist who's given their life to the work of activist theology. Robin understands the life and work of Jesus to mean that there is actually no distinction between the church and social justice work. To be people who take Jesus seriously is to live our theology. This means our care for the environmental crisis, for Black Lives Matter, for decolonization, for listening and learning from others who are different from us. This is how we are the body of Christ in the world. Liberation theologists remind us that this is the mandate of the gospel. They call this the preferential option for the poor and the marginalized. When I look for models about how to do this well, I think immediately of the womanist movement. For those who haven't heard of the term before, womanism is a social movement created by women of color, primarily black women, that is about restoration and justice and love. Feminism, something most of us are more familiar with, is only one thrust of the social movement to restore damage done by patriarchal society but as a history that has a history of centering on the voices and concerns of white women. For example, decades ago, there was a push within feminism for women to be welcome in the workforce, to be celebrated in the workforce. Women of color, of course, saw the narrow vision of liberation in this agenda because they, of course, had been working outside the home for centuries and had the recent history of slavery in their minds. Womanism takes into account how oppression is impacted not just by sexism, but by racism and classism, ableism, homophobia, and colonization. And most importantly, most like Jesus, it's a movement about love, not the tearing down of anybody, 
Rather, a restoration and rebuilding of people in our community so that the table is rebuilt wide enough for everyone to have a seat. In the essay by Alice Walker, where the term was coined, she says a womanist is committed to survival and wholeness of an entire people. Womanist artist Nikki Black recently said that a womanist intentionally looks for the person in the room who has the least social power, the most underrepresented voice, and seeks to give them the mic and learn from them. If you ask me, sounds quite a bit like our Lord saying, and I paraphrase, whoever society has told you is the least, whomever you've been taught to forgot, I am in them. Pay attention to them. So for those of us starting the journey of understanding what a lived theology can look like, there have been so many people who've been doing this so much longer than us, and we can learn a lot from what they have to say about how to do this well. So here are some ideas. If the body is the site of oppression, then paying attention to bodies with different experience than ours will help us see the work that needs to be done. A part of this is the consciousness is raising work of learning to see what we ourselves have not been able to see and to grieve what this not seeing has cost us individually and collectively. To feel our own pain without defenses is what allows us to be sensitive to the pain of others. Dr. Christina Cleveland has said this, turning our attention towards systemic pain is not something we typically associate with spiritual nourishment and liberation, but it is the only way that we will emerge from our deep sleep. We can also take this identity wheel. You can also Google wheel of identity online and spend some time reflecting on each part of our lives, asking which areas do I identify with that I don't actually have to consider on my day-to-day -day basis just to relate to my community in a safe way, to feel inside of something. We can use the wheel of identity when reading scripture to build a perspective taking and empathy skills. You might pick a category of identity on the wheel and consider an experience in that category that's different than your own. And then ask the question, how might someone with this particular experience read this passage of scripture? What do they hear? For example, some theologians with disability have helped us see that Christ is actually recognized in his fullness for who he actually is as a son of God after his resurrection when he appears with disability, with wounds. People with lived experience different than us have always been speaking up about what they need. But the more we are inside dominant culture, the less we hear those voices. So it's our responsibility to go seek out the wisdom of those we've been trained to ignore. Trusting that it is not us who is Christ in this scenario, but bringing hope and salvation to the broken other. Rather, it is us impoverished by our not knowing, seeking out Christ in the other. In doing this, we honor the need. We need to honor that seeking out the voices of others makes it very easy for us to make another person a trope, an object that we use for our own growth agenda to feel good about our social justice efforts. But sharing information about lived experience of being forgotten is generous. If someone in a marginalized body shares about what they have been through to help us learn more, to help us grow, our first response always needs to be, thank you for sharing honoring the other, allowing ourselves to be impacted by this generosity. There is so much to say here, so much more to be said, so much that is unsaid. And there are so many others who could say it better than I. And so as I say that, I'm aware that my proximity to dominant culture allows me virtually an all access pass to spaces to talk about bodies because of how social power is conferred on me in this body. 
Even in spaces typically dominated by men, I'm allowed to speak freely as a woman because I have a PhD, and that has allowed me to be respected, my research and ideas to be heard in ways that others with more lived experience, more wisdom, are not. My hope in saying this all is that as a community, we keep looking to the theologians and the thinkers and activists who are doing the work tirelessly to show us what it's like to be more like Jesus. And we can ask the questions, whose voices have I not heard? Whose work have I not read? And what have I participated in unknowingly that has kept those voices outside of the normative experience for me? Whose experience is outside of what I'm familiar with? Trusting that widening our circle to embody more radical difference is part of how we disrupt the legacy of a faith tradition that in spite of the message of Jesus has often been exclusionary of the people that Jesus has told us he is precisely to be found within. I wanna end by talking about communion. Jesus came into the world as a body. And then he did this very interesting thing the night before the state killed that body. He told us that his body was actually in some bread. Maybe in the act of eating together, maybe sharing the table. I mean, we could get kind of technical and perfectionistic about it. Which kind of bread does it have to be with gluten? I mean, all of the things, is, it a, is a cracker okay? But the more I encounter Jesus, the more inclined I am to think that there's actually something bigger going on here. There is something that has to do with Christ being a body to teach us about bodies, that bodies matter, and that we are now this living, breathing body of Christ. So when we look at this communion thing and ask, what's most important about what's going on here? We can answer that a few different ways. I mean, bread, was that the Last Supper? So if we wanted to take that at face value, that works. We're just kind of replicating the experience. But bread is also something that we see show up in every household, every culture. It's common, it's accessible. But last, last year, my friend Varvara offered this other option, this other interpretation, that bread is a web that connects us to each other. She gave me this illustration holding a common hamburger bun in her hand. And she said something like this, holding it right up to my face. Consider this bun. There was land. Remember the land. The fields were plowed. Remember the person who plowed the fields. The wheat was planted by farmers. Remember the farmers. Remember the person who picked the wheat. Who turned that wheat into powdered flour? Who took the powdered flour to the bakery? Who took it into the store? Who scooped it out one cup at a time? Who kneaded it? Who installed the oven in the bakery? And on and on and on we could kind of go. But Varvara holding this hamburger bun out in front of me made it sacred because all of a sudden I could see the body of Christ in the bread. The bodies of all humans over time, the body of the earth, this sacred union that feeds and sustains us. In this way, the bread sustains us in a very literal sense, our bellies full by the grace of God, but also in this wonderful kind of mystical way that reminds us of our interconnectedness. We are, we are reminded to feast on this the laborers who made the bread. All people that were part of this body reminding us what we too easily forget, the work of Christ being done in the world, all represented in a hamburger bun. This week, as you break bread, as you take the Lord's table, may God grant us the courage to disrupt the systems that fragment us from each other and the joy of remembering the earth 
our bodies, our interconnectedness, all is central to what God is doing here. As we did a few weeks ago, as we did last week with Nelson, we want to remember that embodiment is not just this thing that we think about, but it is the experience of being a body. So to respond to the message, I want to create some invitations for you to be in your body, for us to be in our bodies together. These are invitations. It might be uncomfortable because we're not used to being in our bodies and spaces of faith. So I invite you to join. Think of this as an adventure into the foreign, into the mystical. There's no right or wrong way to do this, but I invite you to join me in a posture. As you take that posture, I'll read the words that represent that posture. And you're welcome to hold that posture until I offer directions for some other posture. Please know there is no coercion. There is no obligation, just invitation into joy. So I invite you, if you'd like to join me into getting into a ball, here you are, as small as you can. I'm gonna try to do this while also being mindful of you, camera. And I'll bring my words with me, so we'll get as small as we can. And as you do that, these are our words. You are here with me in the smallness. And making myself small reminds me to remember those I have made small and grieve with those who have been told their bodies need to disappear. And then as we stand up, I invite you to stand. As you stand, it is you, through you, that I rise and move. I am committed to the rising of my community and to see that as one and the same with my own rising. And then we'll get as big and tall as we can if you want to stretch out to the sky. Exactly, you got it. It's through you that I expand and grow and develop. Remind me, Spirit, that I'm called to restore structures that inhibit this for others and that my expanding is always tied to the expanding of your kingdom. And then as we sit and rest and you find a posture of safety or ease, perhaps even allowing your head to support, be supported by your hand, whatever feels good in your body in this moment. This is our prayer. Thank you, God, for the body that needs rest, that reminds me of your invitation to not always be doing so much and urges me to give up my attachment to productivity and capitalist society.